I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Coming up, special education set to return as health officials warn virus cases are not falling quickly enough. What's the story with the vaccine rollout as a very different picture emerges on both sides of the border? Hotelier and Supermax owner Pat McDonough on the big challenges facing home tourism. And as airline Ryanair faces big losses, what will your summer holidays look like this year? Get in touch on Twitter as always. Our hashtag is tonight, VMTV. Well, let's go straight to the Department of Health and Virgin Media news reporter Zara King. Zara, finally some clarity on education with uh, the promised return of classes for children with special education needs. What more can you tell us about the plan? Yes, good evening, Kira. So this will be good news for parents and families right across the country who will have been left down many times in recent weeks and will have been waiting to hear all about this. Agreement finally reached between the INTO Forza and the Department of Education. It will see special schools reopening from Thursday, the 11th of February. Now, they'll be open at any given time with 50% maximum capacity. So what that'll mean is that uh, children will attend on alternate days, Kira. So they'll be in and out uh, on alternate days. Uh, special classes in mainstream primary schools uh, will reopen reopen three weeks from today. That will be on Monday, the 22nd of February. So a detailed plan will be sent out to uh, principals and to schools tomorrow. What we understand is going to include things like flexible working arrangements for uh, SNAs and teachers who are high risk and also those who are pregnant. So uh, that was something that they had been flagging as a concern in recent weeks. Also financial supports to be provided to parents who uh, may not feel comfortable sending their son or daughter uh, to school on public transport if they want to take them themselves. There will be financial support for that. Uh, Crucial as well additional PPE going to be added and available in those schools but also Kira interestingly we've seen SNAs now being added to the first 30% of the population to be vaccinated so that is a strong uh, move to reassure those SNAs of their safety uh, the INTO saying tonight that the public health advice has assured them uh, that the reopening won't lead to an increase in transmission so they say they're pleased with the arrangements that have been put in place in terms of uh, the wider reopening of schools negotiations still ongoing with that. So that means no decision then, Zara, when it comes to the leaving cert. Yes, Kira. So we know that the uh, Cabinet Subcommittee on Education met today and that was uh, one of the main things that was discussed. Um, the question, of course, whether or not Leaving Cert students will sit that traditional exam or whether or not uh, they'll find themselves in a similar position as the class of 2020 in terms of calculated grades. Uh, we've heard from students today on Virgin Media News talking about the stress and the anxiety that this has led to. Uh, they're worried. They don't know where they stand. And you've got to remember that this class, when they were in fifth year, also missed out on quite a lot of time in terms of uh, being out of class and dealing 
dealing with home education. So they will be waiting for clarity. The teachers unions, the TUI and the ASTI want to see this go ahead um, as a written exam and they talk about how they want to see doable exam papers that offer plenty of choice to students. They say it would be their preference uh, to see the exam being sat. Now it had been initially thought that we might get clarity on the Leaving Cert uh, by tomorrow after tomorrow's cabinet meeting but this evening I've been speaking to one government minister uh, who indicates it will be as early as next Tuesday after the cabinet meeting before we know what's happening. Uh, they say that uh, the Department of Education has quite a lot of work to do on that this week. So another week of uncertainty for those poor Leaving Cert students. Um, you were also at the NEFET briefing this evening. Zari might bring us up to date with the numbers and what NEFET was saying about the fall in numbers and the pace with which those numbers uh, are falling. Some concern being expressed there. Here. So tonight, Dr. Tony Hulan is saying that while things were improving, uh, they're not improving quick enough. And he also uh, took us through the figures. Let's just take a look at those tonight. 1,062 new confirmed cases tonight and 10 further deaths. All of those deaths uh, happening in the month of January, I should say. And uh, the people who died aged between 45 and 101. In terms of the situation in hospital tonight, Kira, we can see 1,529 uh, COVID patients in hospital, of which 206 are in the intensive care unit. But in terms of the concerns and where the issues are with those cases. Kira, we heard at the NEFA briefing tonight that there are concerns about workplaces. People in workplaces, generally speaking, will keep their guard up, perhaps when they're uh, in their workspace, for example, when they're maybe in their office, in their open plan, or maybe if they're working, say, in a supermarket on the supermarket floor. But the concern is about people letting their guard drop when they're on break time, lunch break. So they're seeing outbreaks in staff rooms and break rooms, and this is where the concern is being raised. Dr Ronan Glynn saying tonight that it goes back to that old thing that we've heard many times before, that people become relaxed and perhaps more comfortable around colleagues that they know and that they're familiar with. But we must remember that COVID-19 doesn't know if somebody is a stranger or a close friend or family member. We must remain extra vigilant. They also point to the fact that the B117 variant, that new UK variant, is far more transmissible. So whatever sort of precautions you were taking before, we need to redouble our efforts in terms of that. Uh, finally, this evening, just in relation to uh, travel this summer, Dr Tony Houlihan uh, asked about uh, Michael O'Leary, the Ryanair boss's comments this morning in which he criticised Neffet. Uh, Dr Hulin saying he has nothing but admiration for Mr O'Leary, but he said he doesn't think that we'll be jetting off to beaches this summer. All right, thanks for that update. Uh, as always, Zara, our economics correspondent, Paul Colgan, is here with me now. Paul, you've been looking at vaccine delivery and administration on both sides of the border, and it doesn't make for very pleasant reading. Does it? Big, big differences emerging, Paul. There's a big gulf, and if you wanted to tell the story of how the EU is lagging behind, lagging behind other big Western uh, countries. And on the island of Ireland, the, the story is well told. It's way behind the UK. It's way behind the US. And the reasons why are now well ventilated. Uh, the vaccines haven't arrived. They certainly haven't arrived as quickly as the EU wanted. So if you look north of the border, as of tonight, almost 12% of people in the north have received at least the first dose of a vaccine. And in the Republic, it's closer to 3%, just over 3%. There's different reasons. The big reason, obviously, is that the British moved quickly to authorise Pfizer. They moved quickly to authorise AstraZeneca, whereas the European Medicines Agency took quite a bit longer in order to do that, and they only fully authorised AstraZeneca last Friday. So that is the primary reason. Another reason, it is argued, is that the UK signed contracts a little bit earlier than the EU did in certain cases. Those vaccines arrived when they wanted them to and they were able to roll them out. The other reason why more people in the North perhaps have received their first dose is that they're perhaps receiving the doses further apart. 
So Pfizer recommends that you receive your second dose within three weeks. AstraZeneca, that's a bit more flexible. So what seems to have happened is when they get the doses, they administer them. And then it's only two or three months later that they give the second dose. That's another reason why it's moving that bit quicker. But the primary reason is that they're outside the European Medicines Agency and they move more quickly on those two big, uh, two, two big vaccines. They'll be quite happy, won't they, the UK, I'd imagine, with their decision that they were going to go it alone. I mean, at one stage, I think they were getting criticised by the Labour Party for going it alone. And now it seems to have been, you know, the right decision. Is Ursula von der Leyen coming under pressure? Is the Commission coming under pressure? Are they trying to put a bit of a positive spin now? Um, because we see, you know, there was chaos, I suppose, on Friday when it came to that AstraZeneca uh, contract. And last night we heard we are going to get a little bit more from AstraZeneca than we uh, thought last week. Yeah, the EU has been very keen over the past 24 hours to try and point to positive news. But ultimately, it is a big disappointment. And politicians right around Europe are coming under pressure. Governments are pointing to Brussels and saying, you need to help us out here. But obviously, something went badly wrong with the AstraZeneca contract. They have upped their order for the first quarter of this year from 31 million to 40 million doses, but it was expected that they would deliver 80 million. So in Ireland, we're seeing that we, we had expected 600,000 doses to arrive, only 400,000 are going to arrive by the end of March. So that knocks back the vaccination programme significantly. The other positive thing today that the EU said was that Pfizer will deliver 75, additional, 75 million additional doses in the second quarter of the year. And it seems that it's the second quarter now that the big push will be on around Europe to vaccinate people. The hope had been that towards the end of the first three months of this year, you would have begin, begun to see that, but it's not, it's not going to happen that way. Um, do we have any update uh, from the EU Commission in terms of the deals, the orders, the contracts that are being signed with Johnson? and Johnson with Novavax or indeed any of the other um, vaccines that are out there, the Russian vaccine or the, the Chinese vaccine. I think the German health minister was out uh, in the last um, couple of days saying, you know, we need to consider perhaps. Yeah, well, he said if the Russian or indeed the Chinese vaccine is authorised by the European Medicines Agency, then we'll have no problem with it. Earlier this month, Angela Merkel raised the possibility that they would manufacture Sputnik, the, the Russian vaccine, within the European Union if that were to happen. So this has been a conversation that's been going on for a while. The Germans have seen what's coming down the tracks, potentially. With regards to the other vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson, which reported last week, the overall figure was that it was 66% effective, but the, the, the crucial figure was that it seemed to be 100% effective against hospitalisation and death. And it's a one-shot jab, and you don't have to store it at super cold temperatures. The EU has signed a contract for 200 million doses with the option of a further 200 million. So that could be a potential gain Game changer, but again, it's conditional on the European Medicines Agency giving it authorization. The other vaccine that reported impressive figures last week was Novavax, almost 90% effective, they said, and indeed 60% effective against the South African variant, which everybody is concerned about. The European Union hasn't finalized that contract yet. They announced just before Christmas they'd concluded exploratory talks, but they didn't sign the contract and they still haven't. And where is the UK on that? Contract. They've signed their contract. They've quite, signed their contract. Quite so some that's time the difference, ago. isn't it? Well, that's one of the differences. The, I suppose the way, other way to look at it, this is, for example, you heard the French today raising concerns about the dosing regimen in the UK, saying we would like to do it the way the manufacturers say we should do it, and pointing to that as a potential problem. But the British have taken the view that we'll vaccinate as many people as we possibly can. They vaccinated almost 1% of the entire British population over the weekend. They've taken the view we get it done quick and we get over this quicker. 
All right, we'll leave it there. But thanks for that uh, update, Paul Colgan. I'm joined now live from Derry by SDLP leader Colm Eastwood. And we've been hearing their column about uh, vaccines. Paint a picture for us. Make us, I think, probably a little bit jealous here in the Republic. Um, who has been vaccinated to date in Northern Ireland? Well, a very large number, I think, about uh, a quarter of a million people have been vaccinated and they're moving very quickly through uh, the age groups. It's very well organised. It's, it's actually very, very impressive. Um, but, you know, we need everybody on this island to be vaccinated as quickly as possible to get uh, people to get things back to some level of normality. But the target, as I understand it, is to have you know, all frontline healthcare workers and all of the over 70s vaccinated by mid-February. Is that going to be realised in Northern Ireland? Uh, yes, I think it will be. Uh, almost everybody in care homes, almost everybody over 80, uh, people in their 70s, people now in their 60s are being vaccinated uh, right now as we speak. And it seems to be happening very, very quickly. So I think it's very good news. Um, uh, the, the trouble on Friday night nearly uh, made it very, very difficult, but thankfully we're now over that. Um, and just to, to praise the, the health minister and, and all the people working uh, on that and the people who've gone to the front line uh, to make sure that our vulnerable are, are vaccinated, I think uh, deserve an awful lot of credit. There must be a sense of relief, Colm Eastwood, that Northern Ireland is getting its vaccine supplies from the UK and not from the EU when you hear what the numbers are here in the Republic. Well, I wouldn't quite put it like that. If you look at the way the UK has dealt with this virus uh, from the beginning, there are over 100,000 people dead as a result of really inaction by the British government in particular. And they have absolutely got this vaccine programme uh, more or less right, it's going very well. Um, but we didn't need to lose 100,000 people. Um, and I think you will be able to look at many different instances where uh, the British government in particular have made big, big mistakes here. Um, you were speaking about the Brussels blunder on, on Friday night. You said, you know, we're now over this. But looking at Arlene Foster's comments today in Northern Ireland, she certainly isn't over it. She said that blunder wasn't a mistake. The EU were working on this for a week. What damage do you think has been done to the trust between the executive and Brussels and the people in Northern Ireland and Brussels, given what happened? Well, look, it was hugely damaging, but people in Northern Ireland know who defended them throughout the whole Brexit process. And it wasn't Arlene Foster and it wasn't the British government. It was the Irish government and it was the European Commission. So as angry as we were, um, the, the Commission changed their mind very quickly in response to the Taoiseach. And I was very grateful to see that happening. Um, but the bottom line is this, you know, when Arlene can say whatever she wants, the bottom line is the protocol is there. Uh, to mitigate against Brexit, even if you take all the politics out of it, there wouldn't have, wouldn't have been possible to have a hard border in Ireland. It's you know it's 300 miles long. It just wouldn't be possible to do it. So once the British government left the, the customs and trading relationship, which is the European Union, the single market and the customs union, there had to be checks somewhere. They weren't going to be in Ireland, so they had to be at ports uh, and airports. That's the very uh, you know that, that's the, the the solution that had to be found because of course the DUP. And previous British governments reneged on what could have been a good deal with Theresa May's deal. They didn't need to leave the customs union and single market. And now we're in this situation because of all that. Um, so I, I think you know, Arlene and other unionist leaders should dial down the rhetoric. We're already seeing uh, threats against uh, people working in the port of Larne, where environmental health workers have had to be withdrawn uh, from there tonight. And we're seeing graffiti 
uh, all over all over Northern Ireland. Now, it's important that political leaders, particularly in the context that we have grown up in, in Northern Ireland, act responsibly, take a step back, dial down the rhetoric, and deal with some of the problems that do exist within the protocol. We've dealt with some already. We can deal with more. But we have to accept the reality. This is a result of Britain leaving the customs union and single market. We didn't have to be here. That was their decision. Supported, of course, by Arlene Foster. Um, you speak of the border there and there has been um, some legislation that is going to be introduced here in the Republic of Ireland that will give the Garda Shiokane here the power to fine those who cross the border, who are non-residents here in, uh, in the Republic. What do you make of such a measure? Well, first of all, I think it's a mistake to think about this in terms of the border. I mean, I don't think this, re this virus recognises constitutional boundaries. Uh, but it is right that people should stay at home. Uh, they shouldn't travel unless it's essential. So they shouldn't be going to places uh, that, that they don't need to go to. I mean, I live on the border, um, and, and I know some people have to travel across the border for essential work or looking after relatives or whatever. Um, but if we just think about it, it isn't about the border. It's actually about not moving very far from home. And I think that's a better way of looking at it. Okay. Do you think, though, that'll be reciprocated on the other side if people from the Republic are found to be in, in Northern Ireland? Could we see the PSNI there uh, levying fines against citizens here? Well, I don't know. And to be honest, I'm not convinced that that kind of action by police forces will, will, will really get rid of this virus or drive it down. The way that we do that is for us all to understand that as a community response, we have to do the right thing. Wear a mask, stay at home, wash your hands. That's what protects our most vulnerable. That's what protects our frontline workers. And it's really up to us. I mean, this isn't North Korea. No government can make us behave the right way. But we need to behave the right way out of a sense of community spirit, out of a sense of patriotism. And I think we can all continue to do that and drive the numbers down. OK, we'll leave it there. But thanks for your time this evening, SDLP leader Colm Eastwood there. Now, what will our second summer in this pandemic look like? We're going to talk about tourism and travel next. Do stay with us. You're very welcome back. We're moving our focus now to tourism and travel as we face into a second spring and indeed a second summer of this pandemic. Well, Pat McDonough is a businessman who runs the Supermax fast food chain and is also a hotelier. And he joins me now. Uh, Pat, Michael O'Leary, I'm sure you heard him earlier today. The boss of Ryanair was saying that he's expecting a dramatic recovery for his business this summer. Holidays abroad, July, August and September. Plenty of tourism. Are you as confident? Well, I wouldn't be that overly confident of uh, international travel just yet, because I think the rollout of the vaccine is going to be crucial to the um, success of the recovery of the tourism business as a whole. And I think that, uh, as I say, that, depending on how successful and how quickly it's rolled out, uh, is going to have a big bearing on tourism. And I would see. Uh, tourism in Ireland this year would be based pretty much on what, what happened last year. I think people will, staycations will be hugely important. Um, I think it'll take a while for the international travel to recover and to resume. And uh, as I say, it, that all depends as well on how the uh, vaccinations are rolled out in other countries. 
Um, so as I said, there's a lot of uh, different, I suppose, issues that will qualify how, how successful and how soon the recovery takes place. You mentioned uh, domestic tourism there, and you have, of course, six hotels in Ireland. If people staycation here, as you're hoping, as you're expecting, will that compensate for the loss of international travel? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I think so, because... Um Somewhat similar to last year, I don't see the recovery taking place in, in, in this country until July, August, the latter half of the year, um, because I think, as I say, it all depends on the role of the, of the vaccination. But last year, uh, depending on the locations as well, I say some, ho some hotels, say, in the city centres were the worst affected. I think Dublin probably will be a slower comeback than maybe the rest of the country, because I think people will want to um, holiday and staycation in more rural areas and in touristy areas, I think that the you know families and that will want to uh, meet friends and meet family again that maybe they haven't seen for the last 12 months or whatever. I think that will be the initial stages of it, and maybe it's mini breaks that will be uh, ha that will be have that people will have more often and uh, in various locations around the country. I think that's how, how it's going to start off and then develop from there. Uh, as it did last year. And I think, you know, there's so much to see and do in Ireland that, you know, we're living on, 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 on in, in areas where there's, there's fantastic history and fantastic local events and local uh, places to see. But maybe we, we need to, as I say, spend a bit more time looking around us and see that what Ireland has to offer. You mentioned there... Um in your answers, Pat, the importance of the vaccination rollout, that we won't see real international tourism here again until, you know, the vaccine has been rolled out successfully, you know, across the world, but I suppose particularly in Ireland. And Michael Leary also said today that the government here needs to get its finger out. He wasn't impressed with the speed of the rollout in Ireland. And I'm wondering what you make of the vaccination schedule to date. Well, I suppose... Uh, it's 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 the unknown and the uncertainty of it. It's like everything else is what uh, is causing the, the the problem. Because uh, for an industry like ourselves, it's very hard to plan. It's very hard to predict what's going to happen and how soon it's going to happen. So, as I say, I'm sure uh, the government and I'm sure the EU are doing everything in their power to roll out the vaccine as quick as possible. But until such time as that happens, I don't think we're going to see any major recovery because the confidence of people to travel or to, to, to move around isn't going to be there. So I think that until such time as there's 70 to 80% of the country vaccinated, 
that we're going to, uh, we're not going to see the recovery in any industry or in any business uh, as, w as we would like to. So by the looks of things, Pat, then for your businesses to recover, it'll be the latter half of 2021. That's when we expect 60-70% of the country to be vaccinated realistically at this point. I think so. Yeah, I definitely think it'll be into July, August before you see any great confidence in people to move around. And uh, as I say, we, we, you know, it's going to bring its own issues because in a lot of cases, um, well, over 180,000 have left the industry. So there will be, uh, as I say, a challenge there for uh, recruitment of staff again and training of staff and having uh, businesses ready. So that's all has, has to be done in pre preparation for recovery. So I would say that you know there's plenty of work to be done ahead of us, and it's I'm glad to see that the EWSS is is hopefully going to last till the end of the year because a lot of businesses will need uh, substantial uh, grants etc to recover, and it, I don't think it's going to be like turning on a switch overnight. I think it's going to take a few years to All get right. back to where we were okay. prior to this. All right, as always, uh, thanks for your time this evening, Pat. Thank you. Pat McDonough there. I'm joined now here in studio by Fianna Foyle TD, Jim O'Callaghan and travel journalist Owen Corey. Um, good evening to you both. I think it's actually really important before we talk about travel and tourism that we talk about the vaccine rollout because you hear Pat McDonough saying there the rollout of the vaccine is crucial to businesses reopening and being successful and there are so many unknowns and uncertainties still in terms of the rollout here in Ireland. Are there serious questions, Jim O'Callaghan, to be asked about the EU and the Commission's handling of procuring these vaccinations? Well, we can certainly ask questions about the care. I suppose it was unusual for the EU to be involved in a health issue because predominantly health is within the competency of sovereign states and it's not an EU competency. But it made sense to engage in the procurement process which was led by the EU because we thought we would result in getting greater amounts of vaccines available. Listen, there has been a delay and I'm sure when we look back at it, we can say that the EU was maybe a bit slow. When you look at the UK, the UK entered into a contract with AstraZeneca in May. The EU didn't until August. So when we look back on it, yeah, they could have acted faster. But listen, we're making progress on vaccination. I agree with Pat McDonough because we really can't have a full opening of the economy until such time as we have see effective vaccination coming but through. We looked today, I suppose, at the vaccination figures um, across Europe. Ireland are doing incredibly well. You know, credit where credit is due. I think we've had 200,000 plus mm -hmm. vaccinations doses in the country and we've administered almost all of them. So supply is a, is a huge issue. And you mentioned there that, you know, Europe was a little slow perhaps to send the AstraZeneca uh, contract. But there's many other contracts or many other vaccinations out there. Johnson & Johnson, mm -hmm. uh, Novavax, a new one this evening. I hadn't even heard of it before. And my, me, an EU citizen, Valneva, that the UK has signed a contract with. We're still in exploratory talks here in Europe, the UK has signed contracts, orders on their way. So they're continuing, as far as I can see, Jim McCullen, to be slow in their Well, I suppose uh, we also have to recognise that the EU go through a very stringent approval process for the purpose of approving vaccinations. You saw that the UK did it virtually overnight when it came to AstraZeneca. I would be concerned about a vaccine being approved so quickly. But listen, I've no doubt that the EU can improve in the manner by which it engages in procurement. But if you look at where we are, you're right, we've done 200,000 doses administered 
administered them to date. We're going to do another 46,000 this week. Then next week, we're going to get the AstraZeneca supplies. We're guaranteed 400,000 doses in the first uh, quarter. And after that, we're going to get another 600,000. So we should have an extra 1.1 million doses at the end of the first quarter. So we might get the 700,000 people That if you are in Donegal this evening, uh, 3% of the population there has been vaccinated. You go 20 minutes across the border, you're in Derry, 12%. And look, can I say to you though, I think it's great that the UK has done such a good job in vaccination. Like we need to commend them. They've done an excellent job, but that will inspire us and it'll put pressure on us to ensure that we try to achieve it as well. Has it put pressure on us? Because I don't see any criticism coming from the Irish government in terms of the EU Commission and their work around this vaccine. I haven't heard any politician come out and say, you know what, the EU is too slow here, is too bureaucratic, and we have been left behind. Listen, I think they have been a bit slow in respect of it, but I have to say to you that ultimately when we get the vaccines in, we're going to look back on this. And yeah, maybe we will have been a couple of weeks behind the UK, but we'll get it done. There's hope in this story. The way out of this misery is through vaccination. And we will, I think, in the first quarter, we'll have over 1.3 million doses administered. And after that, we'll get the rest of the population administered as well. So listen, there's a path out of this. And you're right to put pressure on politicians like me to say this should be faster. But in fairness to the Irish government, we don't have control over the EU, as we saw no. what happened at the weekend. No, and we don't have and control, this is an area which is why we need to see member states and Ireland being yes. a member state, putting more pressure, I would argue, on the EU Commission. And that doesn't seem to be happening at this point. Well, if you look at what happened at the weekend, certainly once the Irish government raised its objection in terms of the invocation of Article 16, the EU Commission copped on that it made a mistake. So it does show that the EU responds to interaction from our government. And I think, you know, in due course, we, the, there is more pressure being put on the EU, but isn't the vaccine, vaccines are coming into the country. We'll get there. I can understand why people are not frustrated, but surprised to see how the UK is doing so much better. But listen, we will get there. It is our path out of this misery mm. and we have a good but future ahead of us. in the meantime, businesses remain shut. I know, I closed, Schools remain shut. ICU's number still 206 people I in ICU this evening. Yeah. 10 people um, dead. 1,000 cases. You know, this is know, the matter of the life posi- and I death. Know, we have to look at the positive side as well. 200,000 doses administered this month. 46,000 going to be administered this week. And from next week on, from the 8th of February, we get the AstraZeneca supply. So listen, this is going to be our way out of this misery. And it's a good news story. Listen, I'd much prefer if we could speed up the whole vaccination process. But we can only vaccinate once we get the supplies. But you raise a valid point. Maybe we need to look at the future in terms of whether or not the EU is the competent organisation to deal with health issues. Perhaps it wasn't. Well, we, listen, it's easy to look back now and when we're behind the UK. But let's, we're going to have to do a full review of what happened during this pandemic afterwards. And this will be one of the factors that will be considered. All right. Um, we heard uh, Owen Corey, uh, and I mentioned it there a little earlier, uh, a dramatic recovery. My Michael O'Leary was predicting we'd all be hitting the beaches of Europe in July, August and September. But I think um, Tony Hulan has come out this evening at that NAFED briefing and said, don't be packing your bags, folks. We're not going anywhere. The suntan lotion might need to be, you know, warmed up first. I think what's really interesting about Michael O'Leary, the message that he sent is he's not phased by this. He set uh, a lot of things ablaze this morning. He talked about the vaccination programme being slow, uh, refunds, travel agents. There are fires all day long on different media, people giving out. But the real message is that he's ready to return. Ryanair have been doing something really interesting They've been keeping their aircraft certified and they've been keeping their pilot certified. 
that means they don't have to go back into a simulator and the aircraft won't run into what will be a traffic jam of trying to recertify when things get going. They didn't ground their planes and all of their routes like other airlines did. They're flying empty planes because they're not going to run into that certification where they all have to go back in and get their safety certs. What will happen is once the green light is there, it mightn't happen in July, as he says, it might happen a little later, but they will be ready to return to the sky. That's really good for Ireland because they're an Irish airline and very loyal to Ireland, despite all the noise he makes about the Irish government. That means it'll be very good for travel outbound and for tourism inbound. We don't know what's going to happen with vaccinations. We probably need a run of luck to get Europe travelling again as early as July. But the real message from Michael O'Leary today, and it's a positive one, it's an important one, it might have been missed because he caused so many rows, is that he's ready to return to the sky and get Ireland connected again. What I suspect will happen, and there's a sort of a resistance to connectivity, and we've, you know, the uh, figures will show from Eurocontrol that the, the, we, are the, we are the country that has removed the most of our connectivity since 2019 of the 40. We're bottom of that chart. But the rest of Europe starts moving, Ireland will start getting those air routes wound up again, and we could see a recovery. We'll need a bit of luck for it, but the great news today is that Ryanair are going to lead the rush back into Europe. When will, when will that be allowed, I suppose, Jim O'Callaghan? I mean, do you see any possibility for non-essential international travel this summer for people? Well, I don't know is the answer to that, Kira. to be honest with you. But I think and what we, is it dependent on? Well, we have a strategy, OK? The strategy is because we have high levels of people in hospital, we need to get the numbers down to get hospitals' numbers down lower. At the same time, we're vaccinating significant numbers of people. And once the hospitalisations go down and the va vaccinations go up, I think we will see a lift of restrictions. I also think, and it's good to see what's going to happen in the UK beside us, because they're a couple of weeks ahead of us, as you say. So we'll get a good indication from the UK how effective the vaccine is in, in terms of returning life to normal. I think that'll be a very good guide for us. So it's, I don't would know. Would you agree what, with Tony Hulahan, uh, who said this evening, "Don't pack your bags, folks. We're not going anywhere this summer. It will be the summer of staycation." Yeah, let, let's wait to see. It's too early to say that. Obviously, Tony Hulahan was asked a question this evening. He answered the question the way he's entitled title to whatever whatever he thinks I don't know it's too early you know I think we just need to see how we fa how we get on with this in terms of where we are in June July but I'm hopeful that we're going to be in a much different position in June and July like this vaccination if it displays the efficacy it displays in tests it's going to transform this issue and we're going to get out of this misery. Where exactly are we at now, Owen Corey, when it comes to quarantining and uh, mandatory isolation for international travellers and those arriving into the country? It's quite simple. It's, there's a lot of confusion out there. If you're coming to Ireland, you will need a test and you will need it 72 hours in the 72 hours before you travel. And the really important thing is you're not getting on an aircraft without it. It's the anti-or test and you won't be allowed on the aircraft. So all of that question about arriving without a test at, are you at immigration in Dublin airport, it's not going to arise. We've seen... It's going to be the airline handlers. The check-in desk is where the action is going to be. Now, we've seen uh, something that confused the airlines, the airports, myself, everybody. People arriving in Dublin without it done, which means that perhaps in the first week of it or two, 
check-in people were letting people on board aircraft. I would expect that to change. And when the mandatory quarantine is legislated for, it will apply to the two countries, Brazil, South Africa, and people arriving with having, without having done the test and having got through the check-in, I don't expect the numbers to be large. When do you think that's going to happen? Uh, when will we be in a position that if people are coming in from those countries, as Owen mentioned, that they will be put into mandatory Well, quarantine? we need to introduce legislation to give effect to that, and that should be emergency legislation, so I would hope that would be done this month. But it is important that it is done... The month of February, by the yeah, end of February. Yeah. Like, I can't give you a date as to when it will be enacted, but when you think of the draconian restrictions we are all living under, I don't think it is too much to impose that type of mandatory quarantining on certain people coming in. And the concern here. Do you think that mandatory quarantining should have been extended beyond uh, those countries that are well, there's a, there, I think we have to understand what's the purpose of the quarantining. The purpose is to try to ensure that we don't get those variants in which can transmit very quickly. That's the objective. It's not just to stop any type of COVID coming into the country because we have it here. So I think that's the primary purpose of it. I think it will be effective. Listen, if we were if we were in a, a different position, if we had much lower rates and if we didn't have a vaccine, I think probably, yeah, we would go down the route of Australia and New Zealand. But listen, we have the vaccine uh, with us now and we have an avenue out of this and we have relatively high rates still in the country. So I just think we need to be realistic in what we seek to achieve with quarantine. The focus, it seems, this year, though, is going to be on the staycation, isn't it, Own at the moment? very briefly without everything without the air opening up that's where the action is going to be and remember we have problems there as well because for staycations to work we want the lockdown you know the whack-a-mole approach to the virus and bouncing in and out of lockdown that has to come to a halt and also we need to be certain that it won't happen in peak season that could cause havoc for our staycations all right well Falsha Ireland has launched a 55 million euro scheme for the tourist industry here at home and Jenny de Solis is director of Sex development at Falcher Ireland and joins us now. It is good news for some of those involved in tourism and domestic tourism. Um, was that figure of 55 million, Jenny, was that based on the assumption that Irish citizens would be able to staycation again this summer? Thanks, Kara. The 55 million is the amount of money that the government gave us to support tourism businesses. And I think what's key is that we are providing an essential financial lifeline to tourism businesses to get them a support to be able to be there when the economy opens back up again and when we can staycation. So the purpose of the 55 million is really to support businesses in the meantime so that they are there when, when the country opens back up again. Does Fulcher Ireland feel confident that we will be staycationing this summer? Absolutely. We've done extensive um, research with our domestic audiences and we know that there is pent-up demand there. Um, everybody is keen to get away and to take a break. And we know from the figures that we saw last year uh, in 2020 that you know people did staycation in Ireland. And I think what was great is that their levels of satisfaction were very high. In fact, many commented that they had forgotten how great Ireland was. So there is a real um, desire for people to staycation in Ireland and the product is great. Um, and I would agree with you on that. Uh, Falsha Ireland, I'm wondering, have they written off the possible of international tourism you know, coming into Ireland this year? 
No, we haven't. Look, I think like everyone else on the panel has said tonight, domestic is going to be key. And we know that domestic is what's going to really drive revenue into tourism businesses um, for the first uh, part of the season. Um, it's too early for any of us to say what's going to happen with the international travel. International travel is fundamental to the tourism industry and we do need it, but we need it when it is safe to do so. All right, we leave it there. Um, Jenny Assault uh, from Falter Ireland, uh, thanks for speaking to us. Um, and thanks to uh, Owen Corey for joining us this evening. Jim O'Callaghan is staying with us. Now, what's next? Well, what's happening with crime levels during this pandemic? We'll be discussing it in just a few moments. You're very welcome back. Well, TD Jim O'Callaghan is still with us and we're also joined by criminologist Trina O'Connor. A new Europol report has highlighted the concerns of police forces all over Europe about gangland crime and cheap contract killers for hire. And um, we're going to look at that in a little bit more detail, uh, Trina. But I first just want to uh, bring up another very interesting aspect of this Europol report today that was looking at violence in organised crime groups. But it also identified an issue um, around fake covid certificates, fake negative COVID test certificates. What did the report say? So the report said that there's a gang called the Rapkey Rovers and they're a well-known Irish gang, although I had never heard about them before. But apparently they are selling fake uh, COVID tests that show that you're negative for €150 Euros a pop. So people are looking to circumvent the, the restrictions or maybe to travel or maybe to go back to work, for example. Maybe people that can't be out of work or feel that they have no sick leave and they're buying these fake and negative tests because they may have tested positive themselves. Um, some of the uh, other uh, findings in this report, uh, as I said, it was looking at violence and organised uh, crime groups. What did it have to say about the type of violence and the level of uh, violence that we're seeing in organised crime? So one of the things it said is that violence now has become a commodity. So it's a tool that's being sold across Europe by gangs. And you will have people like, it states that between 10,000 and 100,000 is the cost of a hit. But I would argue that in some states um, across Europe, particularly in Ireland, hits can be much, much lower amounts. You can, you can get somebody um, assaulted or even more seriously harmed for, for a lot less money. In fact, in some areas you might see people carrying out hits or punishment beatings in exchange for for debt um, that they have a debt that they have uh, already that they owe to a dealer, and and these um, hits that they carry out will get rid of that debt for them. And they'd also found that the cost of these hits you mentioned somewhere between ten thousand to hundred thousand, but across Europe it is getting cheaper and cheaper. The yeah. cost of a life is reducing all the time. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, life can become cheap when you're within these gangs. So I suppose like it, it's an organised crime gang like the, the story is it's organized and there's more people wanting to get in on the action particularly with cocaine and harder drugs like that so the more people you have who want to get involved in any business and it is a business to these people then you'll have people undercutting each other so yeah there is there is there's a price war in this commodity of violence and uh, one of the other things that struck me um from this report was pretty worrying statistics around knife crime in Ireland and the number of young people that are found to be carrying knives. That's right, yeah. Last year, 16% of the knives that were seized were between 12 and 17-year-olds. 12 and 17-year-olds? Between 12 and 17-year-olds. Children? Olds. Children. 
Yeah, yeah. And that I suppose that's very troubling. It's all it's almost like a contagion. So if you're going out and you don't feel protected by the state or you don't feel protected by your community and you feel intimidated, then you might feel the need to carry a knife. And then it, once one person starts carrying a knife, then everybody starts carrying a so knife. So was there an increase then in the number of knives that were being found in this country? Yes, yes, there has been an increase, increase year on year. And like in 2018, um, I think there was 13 um, young people who ended up in hospital because of knife crime. Um, out of 164, I think, I think 13 of them were under 18 years of age with serious injuries from knife crime. And were they relating this back to gangland culture? Well, you see, areas? because of the intimidation, Kira, a lot of people won't speak to the guards about what, what's happened. Because if they've been stabbed or if they've been beaten, then it's usually as a warning because of something that they've been involved in. So to be fair to the guards, the guards can only report what... They can only give us the information on what's reported to them. So sometimes they'll know, but they can't prove that it's to do with organised criminal gangs. I know you were looking at the response by the Scottish government uh, when it found itself in a similar position to the Irish government now, uh, looking at the uh, knife crime and the knife carrying among young people. Um, they took action. What exactly did they do? What was successful there? So a couple of things they did. They created the Violence Reduction Unit in Glasgow, because Glasgow was like the knife capital of, of Europe. And what they did was they pumped money into it in a long-term strategic way that guaranteed, even if governments changed, that the um, violence unit would still be there. And actually, it was interesting. I think it was around 2004 they started it, and they did it for about 12 to 14 years. And once money and resources started to be removed, the increase uh, of violence it increased again. I mean, knife crime is a symptom of austerity measures that we've had in this country. So I think... A lot of people will say, oh, you hear about resources going into these communities all the time. However, it has to be sustained and it has to be long term. And the guards have to be resourced. But today, actually, Star Street Garda Station have um, released that they, they're creating a dedicated knife unit because of the spate of attacks in the northeast inner city. And this is all based out of the Mulvey process that was done in the inner city. So there is some work being done. Enough work being done, Jim O'Callaghan, that must concern you when you hear Oh yeah, that. it's hugely concerning and Trina's right, unfortunately the instance of young men and boys carrying knives has shot up and Trina's right in terms of 2018. 2018 the Gardaí seized 2,000 knives and that was a significant increase on previous years. But this, unfortunately what's happening is that boys and young men think it's acceptable to carry knives and the reason they carry knives predominantly is because they think they need them for defensive purposes and that they don't intend to use them aggressively but because of that when a row develops if somebody has a knife the knife is produced there are then tragic consequences as we've seen in the city recently tragic consequences for people who are killed tragic consequences for the family of everyone involved so it's not, i think we need to have a, a, a a multifaceted approach to it. I agree with a lot of what Trina has said, but really we need an information and education campaign to warn boys and young men, and indeed girls and young women, of the dangers of carrying knives. We also, I think, need to increase the penalties for being caught in possession of a knife with intent to cause harm. At what present, is the penalty at the moment? The maximum penalty under the Firearms and Offensive Weapons Act is five years. Fianna Fáil in 2019, we introduced a bill. I brought it forward, seeking to double that to a maximum of 10 years. So it's in criminal justice. Is there any penalty for those 12 to 17-year-olds who are found? 
Well, there, yeah, there are. Nice. You can you can impose sanctions on children, obviously, but there are certain protections for children as well. But listen, it isn't a criminal justice solution that's going to solve this on its own. What we need to ensure is that we educate children in school from an early age of the dangers of carrying knives. If they saw the injuries that are caused, okay. if they saw the devastation imposed on lives, not just of the deceased, but of others, they would change and we need to educate them about that. I just want to ask you uh, very briefly before we wrap this evening, and um, we saw that awful case uh, being reported on today um, of a young man who uh, received a life sentence uh, for the murder of an 11-year-old boy who obviously can't be named. We know the difficulties and the restrictions around the Children's Act. And his mother has said she wanted that act to be looked at, examined, legislation to be brought in because she needs her child to be named. She wants to be able to speak openly about who her child was. When is that going to happen, Jim O'Callaghan? Well, I hope it's going to happen very promptly. I spoke to the minister before Christmas about it. She's keen to do it. I'm going to bring forward a bill on Wednesday and I'm hoping that the minister will adopt it and we'll get this done very promptly because it's not All fair right. on parents. We've run out of time there, but thank you both for your contribution this evening. That's it from us. I'll be back with The Tonight Show tomorrow night at 10. Until then, a very good night and do stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.